Okay, I am Bill Brady, and I want to talk today about our new series. It's Luke. We're looking through the Gospel of Luke. We're looking through his lens to see Jesus. And I've been so excited about this series. Luke's Gospel is a masterpiece. It's incredibly written. It's orderly and done really well. If you're a type A, this is the book for you. Um, It's just so good. And this series is going to be an exegetical series, meaning we're going to start with a text. And then we're going to dig into that to see what it can tell us now. And for an exegetical series, it's kind of interesting because I was thinking about how a lot of people love them. And they're like, we want to just hear out of the Bible. But some people, lots of people actually, wonder, is this really true? I mean, honestly, this book is problematic in lots of ways. It has, it's controversial. It's 1,500 of pages, 1,500 pages of something that we don't always understand. And uh, statistics tell us most of our culture doesn't believe. You know what? You call someone who has doubts about whether the Bible is true, normal. It's normal. That's what it is because we all wonder about that. And so this lens of Luke is really important. We want to see through his lens at Jesus. But When I was in my 30s, I remember one day I was holding a Starbucks cup and I put it like this and said, can't see it, can, can't see it, can't, can't read it, can read it. And I realized my vision is going, my reading vision is shot. I can't see anything without my glasses at all. And so like I've been in stores and had to ask someone to read a receipt for me because I can't see it. And if I forget my glasses at a restaurant, my husband has to read the menu to me like a four-year-old. And it's just an interesting thing because the menu doesn't change. The menu doesn't have any problems. The lens through which I see has a problem. And there are other ways for me to know about the food. I can like smell it and assume maybe that's seafood. I can listen to the chatter of the other diners to know kind of what the food is about. I can watch it come out and try to guess what it is. But the primary way I can know for sure what's available to me is by reading the menu. And to read the menu, I have to be able to see through a lens. I can't read it without a lens. And that is the Bible. In order to see Jesus, we have to be able to see it through, see him through a lens. We see him through the Gospels primarily, through the New Testament especially. And that's particularly our case as we look through the lens of Luke. For the next eight weeks, this is what we're going to be looking at to see and feel and hear and experience Jesus. Are there other ways we can experience him? Yes. We experience him in worship. We can hear him through the Holy Spirit. We can hear about him through each other. There are other ways to hear and see Jesus, but the primary way that we desperately need is seeing him through the lens of the Bible. It just is. I'm going to say it again. This is the way that we mostly see who Jesus is and how Jesus is. So what do we do with some of the problems of the Bible? We believe here that the Bible is both human and divine. It's written by actual, hardworking, fallen, trying hard, living, breathing humans. Humans that have a nationality and a personality and an actual age that they are. And they, they hear God and they write this and 
they are writing to a specific culture in a very intentional and specific time on the timeline of human history. So these writers are writing to a specific group of people and the Bible means what it meant when it was written. We don't just get to make it mean whatever we want it to mean, but they wrote it to a a specific culture. And so none of these things are problems. We just need to know that they exist. We need to know that that the Bible is written by humans and there are things that we want to understand as we go through it. The Bible is also a text that has been handled a lot. It's been passed around a lot. This is a, a pre-Kinko's document. No printing press aided in getting this, you know, the one in your hand, but not originally. The, this was copied. And so there were a lot of humans involved in getting this to where it sits today on this platform. Um, I know and I've heard people say that this is sort of like a, a game of telephone kind of some cosmic centuries-long game of telephone. I whisper something to Maddie in the front row, and she whispers it until we get to the back, and it's not even close to what was said originally. I understand the argument, but it annoys me a little bit because real men and women gave their actual lives so that we could have what we see here in our language. Real men and women loved the scripture so much that they were willing to lay down everything so you could have it and have it authentically, and we do have it authentically. I'm not pretending there's not stuff in here that's hard to understand. I've been studying the Bible my whole adult life, and there's plenty I don't know what to do with, but I'm gonna tell you what's on the page, I am convinced, is what God intended to be on the page. And because I'm up here, I'm gonna tell you why. You can't stop me. That's just how this goes. Sometimes I give me mom mode. Um, I, I, I read a statistic last week that 58% of people have read the Bible less than three times in a year. And not people, Christians. 58%. These are, these are people who have a high view of Scripture but a profound disregard for what's in it. You know, the Bible is the authority, it's the authoritative word of God. God said it, that settles it, I believe it, that kind of thing, but never open it. And so why is that? I suspect it's because we also, we are the choir and we also suspect, I don't know how it got here. I'm not sure what to believe about this. And I think um, some people let those doubts about whether or not this is a game of telephone or not push them away from the table of faith altogether. And they're just like, I'm out. I can't figure it out. It's too complex. I don't know what to do. And then other people are like, I'm just gonna faith my way through this. I'm just gonna ignore that there are any problems. Don't tell me about the problems. There is some sort of angelic host that transmitted it from first century Jerusalem to 21st century Beaverton. This is all fine. It's all fine. Nobody doubt it. And I'm just going to tell you, you don't even have to use your faith on believing that the Bible at least says what the writers intended it to say. There's facts to back that up. You can use your faith for like the blazers or something. I'm new here. I didn't. But I did look up to make sure they had a bad season. (laughs) Um, So... How do we know that the Bible is reliable as it stands? Because I just, I want to tackle this this morning before we launch in to eight weeks of telling you, you can trust Luke. 
You can trust it. It's great. I want to tell you why I think we can trust it, how we got the Bible, what are the facts behind it. The first thing is we don't have any of the original manuscripts. There, the, the, the original, when Luke sat down and put pen to parchment or papyrus, it, that's called the autograph, the original text that was written on. We don't have any of those from the New Testament. Those are gone. But what happened was after he wrote it, everyone loved it. He, de- he delivered it faithfully to Theophilus. And then people started copying and copying and copying and copying and copying it. And that happened with all of the New Testament. People began to copy it over and over again. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, the church numbered about 200 people. Luke also wrote Acts. Um, The church numbered about 200 people. And at the end of the book of Acts, it numbers thousands. And it is growing like wildfire. And everyone is moving the church into urban centers and beyond. Now they're running from persecution. And in the urban centers where the church moves, there are large groups of copyists or scribes. And there are people who sit down by candlelight and they write word for word the the, uh, manuscripts that they're reading. And would you imagine that in that job, there might be some errors. There might be some, we call them variances. There are some places where most of the variances, in fact, a a whole big part of them is people, some wrote Christ Jesus and some wrote Jesus Christ. There are places where there are punctuation errors. There are places where things differ slightly because copyists just copied it a certain way and then that scripture got taken to a church in another city and those mistakes got taken with them. And you can almost watch some of the variances travel through the path of the early church. And so there are variances. There are in fact about 400,000. If you lay all the manuscripts that we have of the Bible across the stage, they wouldn't fit, um, and compare them each to one another, there would be 400,000 differences. That's a lot. There's only about 100,000 words. So we could, we could say it's like a 400% error rate. You want to build your life on a book like that? But here's the thing. The more copies you have, the more reliable your document is. This works of any text, any ancient document where we're relying on hand-copied texts. The more copies, the more reliable. I'm going to show you how it works. I have turned to my favorite text outside of the Bible, Yertle the Turtle. And I would like to see that paragraph, please. On the faraway island of Salamisand, Yertle the Turtle was king of the pond, a nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. You can email me about a lot of things, but do not email me about Dr. Seuss. I don't want to hear if you don't like him. Um, (laughs) So if I took this paragraph and we picked 100 people out of this room and I had you write it down and I said, you need to do your best work. Like I'm going to pick like the teachers and the people that are perfectionists. And you need to write it down word for word with a pen and a piece of paper if we can find that anywhere anymore. It, would you, if we line those hundred copies next to each other, would you imagine there would be some variances? Yeah, there'd be some, there'd probably be more variances than there are words. Um, studies show we just get it wrong. Some of the variances would be unintentional. It'd be like somebody puts a comma in a wrong place 
or somebody spells a word wrong. Some of them would be intentional, but they wouldn't really impact the meaning. Like a teacher might look at it and say, uh, a nice little pond period is not a sentence. That's not gonna work for me. I'm gonna need to fix that. I'm sure Dr. Seuss meant to have his grammar right, so I'm gonna fix it. So that would be a variance that's intentional, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text. But then somebody might say, I don't think for a minute Dr. Seuss wanted Yertle to be a turtle. I know for sure he wanted Yertle to be an aardvark. And someone else might say, I think he wanted Yertle to be a rhinoceros. And so we've got this dispute in our text. We've got a variance in our text. They are, uninten they are intentional and they change the meaning. So if we line them up and we have 98 that say Yertle is a turtle and one that says Yertle is an aardvark, could we say together with certainty that we know what Dr. Seuss intended? Not rhetorical. Yeah, yeah, we could say with absolute certainty, we know Yertle was not an aardvark and he was not a rhino, darn it, he was a turtle. Because we've got enough that agree that we can toss out the two that don't. Now, if we had three copies of Yertle the turtle, rhino, aardvark, turtle, it's anybody's guess. So number of copies really, really matters. The New Testament has more copies, more manuscripts than any ancient document in history. The New Testament has over 28,900 copies written in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. And the nearest, the, the second place ancient document is Homer's Iliad. It has 300 copies. And nobody wonders, did Homer really write the Iliad? Is that really what he wanted to say? Nobody wonders. 300 documents. We have 29,000 copies of the New Testament to compare. And from that, we see 400,000 variances, but none of them impact actual doctrine. All of them are things that do change. For instance, I think one of the big ones is the Lord's Prayer. You maybe have heard or you maybe seen it in Gospels and then you see it in Matthew and sometimes at the end it says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's not in the original. What scholars believe happened is that the New Testament was meant to be read out loud. That's what they did with it because they couldn't pass it around and just everybody read it in their own read it themselves. So they would read it out loud together and they would do the Lord's Prayer every time and it ends quite abruptly. I don't know why Jesus didn't do a softer landing at the end of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, boom. But instead they would add a hymn to the end, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And some copyist sometime was transcribing the Lord's Prayer and was like, hey, they forgot the last line and added it. So yes, that is not in the original manuscript. Does it change the foundations of our faith? No, I think it adds a nice little touch actually. <laughs> so we can count on the reliability of this. We know that we know what the variances are, that's not some mystery, and we know what they mean and what they represent to our faith. The original manuscripts of the Bible were written in Greek and Hebrew and then in Latin, but centuries down the road, people like William Tyndale decided that everyone should be able to read them in their own language. Tyndale worked tirelessly to translate 
the Bible into English. In fact, he hired people um, that were just average people, even women he hired to transcribe and to translate into English. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. And German and English and Hebrew and Greek, have you ever seen a comparison of those languages? It's not like there's one Greek word for every Hebrew word or one Greek word for every English word. It's tricky business to translate what's written in one language into another. Ask our brilliant translators. It's hard. And so um, when someone says to me, I just want to go to a church where they just preach the Bible and don't add in any interpretation, oh, bad news. If you read the Bible in English, it's already been through a bunch of interpretation to get it into a language. But William Tyndale is the person who wanted desperately to get the Bible into English. He was tried as a heretic. He was strangled and then burned at the stake. And um, he gave everything for these Bibles that we keep in the trunk of our car. He gave everything for them. And now, after he died, his work lived on, and King James, maybe you've heard of him, uh, adopted the Tyndale translation, and the King James Bible as we have it is 80% the work of William Tyndale. William Tyndale gave his life thinking this would never work. Like, uh, his manuscripts were burned in the fire over and over again, and yet his Bible sits in the hotel room drawers all over America. So these are people that I personally believe the world was not worthy of, but that's why we have what we have in our hands. So this brings us back to our lens, Luke. Luke was written by Luke. Early church writings tell us he was a co-laborer and companion of Paul, a physician from Syria and Antioch, and the author of Acts as well. Other sources tell us he was not married and he died at 84 and had no children. And we pick up some clues to his character by other things that Paul writes about him. He says in Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then in Colossians 4, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Then listen to this one, 2 Timothy do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens is gone and Titus is gone. Only Luke is with me. So we know about Luke that he was loved, faithful, steadfast, and loyal. Why does that matter? Because when you read what somebody has written, don't you care about their character? If you want to believe them, doesn't it matter to you? Like, what kind of person wrote this? If this person is a jerk to all the world, I don't want them telling me about the love of Jesus. So Luke is someone who is trusted. He is a pillar in the early church. From the prologue of Luke, we see that Luke was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, and his writing is more sophisticated, um, and it it's, it's, points to a highly educated man who's at home in Greco-Roman culture and, and uh, well-versed in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament. Still, we don't know his ethnicity with certainty. What we do know for sure is that he's a steadfast Christ follower. It feels like this book is written to Gentiles and not to Jews. And so that gives us a little bit of what Luke is after. 
for a lot of reasons that relate to events that Luke covers in his gospel and and events that he doesn't, we can date the writing of this gospel somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. And that matters because that means he has gathered eyewitness accounts, not just people who heard the eyewitness accounts. This stands the test of textual documentation of authentication because the, the people were still alive who Luke was writing about. The people were still alive who he was writing about, so they could have disputed it if it was wrong. But in fact, there is no ancient document contemporary to the New Testament that disputes any of the events that are inside of it. People that didn't follow God had pens too. They could have written a rebuttal, and we don't have anything like that. So this book is a biography It fits perfectly in the ancient kind of way, the style of a biography. And there's some things we know and things we don't know about the who, what, where of Luke and and how he wrote it. But one thing that isn't left in any doubt is the why. Luke tells us why he's writing us, and I love this. And as we read this scripture, I want you to remember that this text, anytime we approach the text, we have to do it reverently, not because we worship the Bible, but because so many lives have been involved in this, because from heart to heart and hand to hand, it's made its way to us, and it's miraculous that we hold these in our hands. It's miraculous. And so as Luke opens his book, he says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, listen, the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke uses a word here that is hard to use in our culture, certainty. I mean, how many things are you absolutely certain about? Think of all the things you thought you knew. And now you're like, nope, that turned out not to be true. Luke says, I am writing this to you with absolute certainty so that you can have certainty. He gives us a picture into his process. He says that he's investigated these stories personally and carefully. Luke was a disciple of Paul, and he traveled with him on his missionary journeys. And I love just thinking about Luke sitting down with John and saying, hey, tell me more about the woman at the well. How'd that go down? I love the idea that scholars believe that Paul and Peter preached together in Rome. And the thought of Luke sitting down with Peter and asking, what was it like when Jesus saw you after he was risen? Was he like, I told you, you'd deny me, man. (laughs) I told you, I don't know. I just love this idea that Luke gathered these stories so that we could know them. He gathered them and cared for them so that they would be a lens through which Theophilus could see the real, true Jesus. So that he could know with certainty about the things he'd been taught. We don't know who Theophilus is or why Luke cares enough to create this masterpiece for him. And I'm kind of glad we don't because my hunch is Theophilus is you. Theophilus is me. Luke is writing to all those who need to see a clearer picture of Jesus, who need clarity. I was thinking about 
that word certainty. And it's just always interesting to me that God makes no apology for being invisible. He's just like, yep, I'm invisible. You're going to have to figure me out through other things. That's how that's going to be. And so how do we know things with certainty? What are the things I even know? I mean, I used to know lots of things with certainty, like 50,000 things I knew certainly. And now I know like four. It's getting less. By the time I die, it's going to be probably just death and taxes, as everyone has said. But there are just so few things that we can invest our certainty in. If you've ever wondered how we choose what we speak about here at before, we have a content development team that meets every week. Um, seven or eight of us who pray and talk and brainstorm and debate and say, what is it? And these people represent lots of ages and stages in our church. And as we, we prayed about this, we just said, we just want people to see Jesus. We just want them to see him in a reliable way. We want them to see that he's real and that he's good. So Steve Mitchell sent me, he's on the team, and he sent me this picture this week. Yeah, the Pope, look and fly. It's just kind of awesome. Um, he is, this is like, a, it, this went viral and it created widespread outrage. That is not how the Pope is supposed to dress. That outfit would feed a thousand children. What is going on? And the problem is it's not true. It's a deep fake. And I mean, remember the saying, picture or it didn't happen? Even then, doesn't matter. We can't trust it. Now we can't trust the things that we thought advanced us to a place where we didn't need people to write things down word by word. Steve sent me this. He said, we need Luke's assurances more than ever. So much of our life comes to us mediated by a screen, which in turn is manipulated by another intelligence, human or otherwise, and we have no idea if it loves us, hates us, or simply wants to consume us. But Luke assures us, we God lovers, that he's done his homework so we can have certainty in an uncertain world. Luke says, you can trust this lens and you can, you can trust that it's reliable and you can trust Jesus, only Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us story after story after story of people whose lives are upended in the best possible way by the grace of God. He tells us about blind people seeing and lame people walking and deaf people hearing. He tells us about people being delivered from powers of darkness that control them. He tells us about people being raised from the dead. He spends 20% of his book on the last week of Jesus' life to show what a heroic thing happened for us. Luke gives us living color pictures of who Jesus is. And this is the same Jesus that we get to serve this is brilliant that we see these and we see these stories and we know this is still true today. You are living it out. This is the same Jesus. This week following Easter, I heard so many stories. I heard about a marriage that was saved. I heard about a person who's kept faith at arm's length for the longest time and finally said, I just wanna know Jesus. I heard about people who were in despair and they found hope. I had something like this happen to me when I was 14. I went to a summer camp I didn't want to go to, and introverts hate summer camp, P.S. Um, and I, I went to a summer camp, and 
I got really sick while I was there. It's a terrible head cold, and I just couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate, and I hated it. And one night, the speaker just randomly got up, and he said, hey, I think a couple of people are sick, and I want to pray for you. Stand up if you're sick. And I'm like, okay, I'll stand up. And when he prays, he also says, and I believe that God is going to heal you, and after he heals you, he's going to give, he's going to Uh, open the eyes of your understanding, and when you read the Bible, it's gonna come alive for you in an entirely new way. And I am sitting there listening to that going, all right, whatever, buddy. Okay, I just wanna be well and go home. And within moments, I'm totally well. Within moments, I think it's one of the only times that's happened to me. But the next morning, I get up, because we have cabin time, quiet time, And I open my Bible, and it is like Alice in Wonderland. It's like it has come alive. Everything is new and fresh, and I'm wondering what is going on here, and I'm curious about every story I read, and why is that word there? And I have never been the same. I have been ruined for being a lawyer since that moment because all I'm qualified to do is talk about stuff for a long time, and that was the only other career path for me until I was ruined by the word of God, because Jesus showed up in my space and he opened my eyes and I am shamelessly in love with this crazy, complicated book. And I am telling you, you can argue with it. Get in the pages, fight with it, wrestle with it. You can doubt it. You can bring your authentic self to it. Just show up. Show up at the text and see what God might say to you. Just show up. Ask him to show you Jesus through the words on this page. When my first husband was dying and I felt desperate, I would wake up in the morning and I was exhausted. And sometimes I would just open it and lay my head in the pages. Just, Jesus, could you just transmit something to me? And then some days I would get up and I would read scriptures about healing and I'd be like shaking my fist. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And the Holy Spirit would have to show up and show me something that made it make sense to me, that kept my faith alive because there's a lens and the lens is reliable. I am just begging you to trust me and give it a chance. And some of you I know, again, you're the choir and I know it. And you say, I just, I've, I believe it already. And that's so good. But you're going to run into people who don't. And I want you to be armed with a foundational element to say this is something that can be trusted. The very end of William Tyndale's life, right before he was killed, his last words were, oh God, open the king of England's eyes. Because we don't just need a lens. We need eyes to see. We need to be willing to look. And all of those stories that I hear means that you also are a lens for people to see the truth and the work and the love of Jesus in our world. Maybe people can't see the menu. Maybe they're not at all interested, but they can hear the chatter of those who are at the feast. They can hear what Jesus can do through your life. Maybe there's something about knowing more and reminding ourselves over the next few weeks that God is who he says he is that will transform our community.
We've given you these little cards, and there's a QR code on the back, and this will send you straight to the Bible, plan, the Bible Project reading plan of Luke and Acts over the next 40 days. And I would love it if we could just dive in together. Let's stake our flag in the Gospel of Luke. Let's own it, let's learn it, let's figure out what it says. You don't have to believe it. I'm just asking if you would suspend doubt for eight weeks and just give it a shot and see what God might tell you, what he might show you as your eyes are opened to his word. Jesus, I ask for your Holy Spirit to uncover our hearts and the veils of our minds and the cynicism that, that our world is soaked in. God, would you make us those who can see and hear and know you in a fresh way? We thank you for faithfully giving us the text that we see in front of us. We thank you that it matters. And we invite you to show us new things. We invite you to wake us up. We invite you to make us curious. Help us to hear the evidence of the eyewitnesses and understand who you are. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, will you stand with me? Let's do the benediction, shall we? If you'd like to receive this, would you put your hands out in front of you? May you be people who use all your senses to hear, see, and experience Jesus as he brings his love to our world. May you let his grace fill you and flow through you into barren, broken places. And may you see him through the lens with more clarity and joy than ever before. Amen. I love you. Thank you for being here this weekend. We'll see you next week.